Hello, humans! It's me, Ellie Krug, with Ellie 2.0 Radio. How are you today? How are you? I mean, it's January 27th. And it's going to be maybe 40 degrees in Minnesota. I mean, this has been the mildest winter I have ever, I think, experienced in the Midwest, let alone in Minnesota. And so, wow, we, I mean, we don't have any snow on the ground. Everything is like defrosting. I'm worried that the trees are going to start budding. I don't know. So at any rate, there you go. Your customary weather report from yours truly, Ellie Krug, starts almost every show. And we have a great show for you today. The big interview is with a woman named Kelly Jensen, who has a blog, Literary Activism, that highlights book bans, promotes our libraries and our teachers, supports them, um, and attempts to push back at what's happening in America relative to banning books. You'll love her interview. And of course, in my C block, I'm going to talk about my work as an idealist. And this week, ah, I've got a special announcement. And no, I'm not going to give it to you right now. Um, You're going to have to listen all the way to the C block to hear it. Ah, Sorry, I just did that to you. Okay, Uh, but here in our A block, let's talk about this week's featured idealist. Remember, the show is about idealism and idealists, people working to make the world better. And um, uh, this week's featured idealist is a woman named Jean Manford. Now, I'm going to guess that most of you have no idea who Jean Manford is, and, and I do a good job of highlighting idealists and educating everyone about them, okay? But to begin, let me take you back to the year 1972, more than 50 years ago. And it was just three years, 1972 was just three years past the Stonewall Riots when the modern gay rights movement was launched. And in 19, just so you know this, and in 1972, I was 16 years old. So I know this, okay? In 1972, it was still illegal to be gay in most of America. You could be arrested for having same-sex sex. You could. And you could be fired from your job, denied health care or credit, or even a place to live if you came out as gay. You could. So it was against that backdrop um, uh, in 1972 uh, that Jean Manford was a school teacher in Queens, New York. She was married to Jules Manford, and together they had three children, two sons and a daughter. One of her sons, unfortunately, died as a teenager in 1966. And her, but her other son, Morty, M-O-R-T-Y, Morty was gay, okay? And in 1972, Morty was about 20 years old. And in April of that year, 1972, in April of 72, Jean and her husband received the kind of call that every parent dreads, um, ever dreads getting, okay? And it was a call from a New York City hospital that her son Morty was in the hospital after being beaten by a homophobic man. Um, uh, Morty, uh, who had become a gay activist uh, as of 1972, uh, had been handing out flyers at a New York City political meeting when he was attacked. Thankfully, 
uh, Morty survived. I mean, the police hauled Morty away. Uh, they, I don't think they did anything to the man that attacked him. Uh, but the incident incensed Gene and Jules so much so that Gene wrote a letter, a protest to the New York Post. This was back when the New York Post wasn't owned by uh, Rupert Murdoch and when it was at least some semblance of, of uh, uh, being middle road. She wrote a letter to the New York Post in which she wrote, okay, quote, I have a homosexual son and I love him. Now, in the letter, she also complained about how the police led Marty, Morty away and didn't arrest his attacker. Now, although we in 2024, okay, might think that such a letter in which a mom says, I love my gay son, we in, in 2024 might think it's such a simplistic thing. Uh, but the fact of the matter that in 1972, writing that letter, writing a public message that a parent loved their queer kid, that was revolutionary. It was. It was unheard of. And the letter prompted TV and radio interviews of Jean and her husband. Um, and then two months later, Jean and Jules and Morty, uh, Morty recovered from his injuries, thank God, uh, they marched in the New York City Pride Parade. I don't know if they called it the Pride Parade then. I think they may have called it the, the Christopher Street Parade, okay, because Christopher Street was where Stonewall was, was located. Um, but at any rate, they marched in a parade, and Jean carried a handmade and, – and if you go and Google her name, Jean Manford, you're going to see this – carried a handmade sign that said, quote, parents of gays unite in support of our children. Now, when the gay people, the gay men, the lesbians who were in that crowd, who were a part of that march, and trust me, it was not all that big a march in 1972, when they saw that, they reacted with outpouring of emotion. And they were asking Gene and Jules if they would, if they, they would be willing to talk to the parents, their parents, okay, the parents, these gay men are coming and saying gay and lesbian coming. Would you go talk to my parents and tell them about the need to love me? Again, it was 1972. And coming out as gay or lesbian in most families in 1972 meant that the, the queer person most likely would be disowned and shut out by their families. Now, okay. That still happens even today in 2024, but much less frequently than more than 50 years ago. Today, thankfully, many, many families love and accept their queer kids. And my answer or my statement for that is thank God, really, that that's the case. But still we have, we have families disowning queer kids even today in 2024. As a result of Jean's letter... And then her sign in the Pride Parade. It became clear that there was a real need for parents to band together in support of their queer children. Less than a year later, in March of 1973, an organization named Parents of Gays had its first meeting at a Methodist church in Greenwich Village. Approximately 20 people attended. So, remember, Stonewall occurred in Greenwich Village. Now you have a meeting um, in in March of 73, so less than four years after Stonewall, and you've got this meeting of parents, 20, not a whole lot of people, but it's a flame. It's a flicker of a flame, okay? The spark for a flame, okay? They meet, and then as word of mouth about this group, parents of gays, spread, 
what happened was there started to be new chapters of parents of gays across the country. And eventually they settled on a name. And the name was Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays. Okay? Um, now, and it's known as PFLAG. Okay? And I'm, some of you, I'm sure, have heard of PFLAG. It is a wonderful organization. Hold on. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about it. But PFLAG, P-F-L-A-G, Parents and Friends of Lesbian and Gays. Okay? It sprang up. By 1976, there was a chapter, a PFLAG chapter in Los Angeles. When Dear Abby mentioned uh, something about that L.A. PFLAG chapter in her column, remember uh, uh, younger people, Dear Abby was this woman who had an opinion about everything and people followed her columns all the time, kind of like – early blogging, okay? But when Dear Abby talked about the L.A. Uh, PFLAG chapter, the L.A. PFLAG chapter in turn received 7,500 letters from parents asking for information and for help on how to love their queer kid, you know? Over time, more and more PFLAG chapters were added, and its umbrella increased. And then soon, uh, PFLAG was also working to protect transgender and bisexual people. Just so you know, PFLAG has three chapters um, in or close to Minnesota. They've got a chapter in Cambridge, Minnesota, New Prague, Minnesota, and over, over across the river in River Falls, Wisconsin. There is no chapter in the Twin Cities, which is odd, but then perhaps that is because we are so progressive here, maybe there's not a demand for it. I don't know. I'm not sure why there's no chapter in the Twin Cities, but... But I will tell you this. If you have a queer kid, if you want to be supportive, you know, maybe you want some strategies on how to talk to other family members who are unaccepting about your child. Maybe you want to find strategies on how to make your school more accepting for your kid. Whatever that is, okay? All you have to do is Google, quote, PFLAG Minnesota. Okay, that's your phrase. And you'll find contact information for the three chapters that I just talked to you about. Now, the rest of the story about Jean Manford is bittersweet. Her son, Morty, went on to law school and became an assistant New York State Attorney General. But, unfortunately, in 1992, he died of AIDS, and he was only 41 years old. And that's a reminder of how the AIDS epidemic devastated the gay community in the 1980s and 90s. More happily, in 1991, Jean was uh, named as the Grand Marshal of New York City's Gay Pride March. And trust me, by 1991, it was quite the affair, but not as much of the affair as it is in 2024. It's going to be in 2024, okay? 22 years later then, um, in uh, 2013, President Barack Obama honored Jean uh, posthumously because she had died in January of that year. And he presented her posthumously the Presidential Citizens Medal. It's the second highest civilian award given by the U.S. President Obama went on to say this about her, quote, These folks participate. They get involved. They have a point of view. They don't just wait for somebody else to do something. They go out there and do it. And they join and they become become part of groups and they mobilize and they organize. And then the president went on to say about founding PFLAG, quote, this was back in 72. There was a lot of hate, a lot of vitriol towards gays and lesbians and anyone who supported them. But instead, she, referring to Jean, wrote in the local newspaper and took to the streets with a simple message. 
Sorry. It it does touch my heart. No matter who her son was, no matter who he loved, she loved him and wouldn't put up with this kind of nonsense. You know, um, you know, Jean Manford, idealist, she was. She made just a mere act of writing a letter helped change the world. And sometimes it's that simple as well as that difficult all at once. Okay? So go check out Gene Manford. Go. All you have to do is Wikipedia, Gene Manford, J-E-A-N-N-E, Manford. Or just Google uh, uh, Google uh, PFLAG, okay? And you'll find out the story of both PFLAG and Gene Manford. All right. When we come back, we're going to do our uh, big interview with uh, Kelly Jensen. You're going to love this interview. And then we'll, we'll go into my C block. All right. All right, you're listening to me, Ellie Krug, one of the relatively few uh, transgender radio hosts in the world. If you like what you hear, go visit my website at elliekrug.com. We'll be back in a sec. I want to take the breath true. And we're back. Ellie 2 Barnell Radio. So, as I said, uh, check out Gene Manford. Check out P-Flag, okay? Just incredible. And, and you know, it's just, and P-Flag, I did not tell you this, but they have, you know, hundreds. I think there are 400 chapters in America. So it's a pretty big organization. All because a woman wrote a letter uh, back in 1972. Now, uh, for the big interview, I am thrilled, just absolutely thrilled to have a woman named Kelly Jensen. She is an editor at Book Riot. And if you don't know about Book Riot, go look it up. It is the largest independent book website in North America. She covers all kinds of things, including young adult literature. She's written about censorship. Uh, she's been doing this for about 10 years. She's the author of three critically acclaimed and award-winning anthologies for young adults. She was named a Person of the Year uh, in 2022 by Publishers Weekly and a Chicagoan of the Year in 2022 by the Chicago Tribune for anti-censorship work. Uh, Kelly Jensen, Welcome. Welcome to LA 2.0 Radio. I'm thrilled that you're here. I am so thrilled to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thanks for coming on. Now, I, you know, you got on my radar because you've got a blog called Literary Activism. And it's about book banning and about, you know, what's going on in our country. And, and I saw when I started, you know, reading your stuff, I'm like, well, there's an idealist, Ellie. You got to reach out to her. It took me a little while to get to you, but... But Kelly, tell us a little bit first of all about your about your blog, okay, and about what you know what is literary activism about, and then let's talk about what the heck is going on in America right now about books, okay? And you do not know this, but I am a huge supporter of librarians. I presented to library associations across the country, and I I just I love I mean they're like my favorite among my most favorite people because they are the last protectors of the truth. Okay. All right. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I was just going to say, I, I just talked to Wisconsin public librarians this week. And one of the last questions I was asked was, you know, why, 
should librarians continue to want to be in this field and continue to want to do this work despite what they're facing? And, you know, that's pretty much exactly what I said. Like the power to be such a foundational piece of democracy, to be one of the few third spaces remaining in this country, that is incredible to have that power and to give other people the chance to access any and everything that they can imagine that they can want. Like it's incredible. Um, My first career was in libraries as a librarian. And so that really sparked my passion for libraries. And it also was where I got my start caring deeply about book bans and, and not from the perspective of what books are being banned. That's important. But what do book bans say about our democracy? What do book bans say about what people do and do not believe are acceptable things for people to care about? Or as we're seeing now, what type of people are being further stigmatized by being told their stories are not allowed to be on shelf by saying that children will be harmed by having these stories on shelves. Um, So three and a half years ago or so, I had been regularly covering book bans on Book Riot, and this is when we started to see more and more challenges and bans coming. And this is coming on the um, right after we had heard all the rhetoric about reopening the schools uh, post COVID. Now schools never closed; they right. went virtual. Right. Uh, but that that rhetoric really caught hold. It continued into anti-masking anti-vaxxing and then it's really really added up to this anti-books rhetoric um, which is at its core anti-public education anti-public services Um, i've been covering stories here and there and as things started to really grow at this moment i realized there was a need to rethink how this information was shared and decided that literary activism would be the way to do it. Um, Every week I collect all the stories that I can find on censorship happening across America and use that as an opportunity to talk about some aspect of book banning or censorship that anybody who cares about democracy, who cares about the right to read and who cares about these institutions can learn from, but also feel inspired by. Um, There's a lot of dark and heavy stuff. There's a lot of stuff that can really make you feel hopeless. Uh, But I I think that so much of that can be tempered with a reminder that we as citizens have the capacity, the ability, and the right to speak up and act um, on behalf of the things we care about. Well, your most recent um, blog uh, post was about school librarians. And you've got some data in your blog about how the public, you know, you know, because the list is very short about who the public trusts. All right. But tell our listeners, if you would, what what does the data show about how people trust librarians, including because it's also broken down to public librarians and and school librarians? Yeah. So Book Riot and the Every Library Institute, which is um, a political organization for uh, political nonprofit for libraries. And we came together to do a series of surveys to look at parental perceptions of libraries uh, with a focus on public libraries in one, a focus on school libraries in a second, and then a focus on librarians as a field as the third. 
what we found in these surveys was that um, among a giant list of professions, both public librarians and school librarians were ranked in the top five most trustworthy professions. I love it. They're there. They're there with teachers. They're there with doctors. They're there with nurses, which is pretty incredible. Um, the public trusts library workers. Um, the public also, I think the number was 95% of parents want every school to have a school library. That's great. I don't think you could find that kind of percentage <laughs> for about anything. No, no, not even, you know, not even if they want to target it in their neighborhood. Right. So. Right, right, <laughs> right. And so these numbers just show this incredible support for the profession and for these institutions. And, you know, we, we do see and we are living through so much censorship. But when we go back to the numbers, when we go back to right. what actual parents say what actual parents feel they love these institutions and they don't want them to go away well kelly tell me if i'm wrong okay you know and and i i've shared with you and to prep for the show that i'm a school board member um you know my listeners know i'm on the eastern carver county school board um am i wrong but that many of these efforts to ban books is just by a very small Vocal, but vocal, that's the right word, okay? Small group of people, very, very small. Am I, am I correct about that? You're absolutely correct. Um, I want to say that the number is something like 11 people across the country are responsible for the vast majority of challenges <laughs> and bans nationwide, right? Um, and we have seen in the data from everything that's been collected that um, – Something like 83% of the thousands and thousands and thousands of books that have been banned um, across the country, something like 86% have only been banned in one school or one public library. Now, saying that is like, wow, yeah, they're still banned because that's right. one. Right. But when you look at those numbers, you're like, okay, it's it's not everywhere. It's not hundreds of every single school district it's you know well except in I except in iowa okay so in, I, well <laughs> you know iowa just had their law um stayed yeah it's enjoying so for it, right now right yeah yeah so for now I know. We'll see what happens. <laughs> I'm, a, um, I'm a former Iowan, and my li my listeners know that, so that's why I said so that. Am I. <laughs> oh, so am I. <laughs> oh, that's right. We have we have in, we have colleges uh, in common. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, know, go ahead. Go I, ahead. I was just going to say, like, I think it's, it's worth some perspective here that um, most of these challenges are coming from a few big national organizations that have spread their work at the county level. So Moms for Liberty is one, no left turn in education, but there are also groups that operate more locally. Like in Illinois, we have our own group. I know um, Minnesota has several groups, you know, but they all follow yeah. the same model. Right, right. And these groups are a minority. These groups are very fringe beliefs. They're very loud um, and very pushy and have a lot of money behind them which is what has made it so successful. But it's also very clear from the data and from the resistance we see that this is not um, popular. This is not the majority of 
what people want. Well, and I will tell you, um, just from personal experience, this book banning, these attempts to book ban, ban books is not cheap. So, for example, mm-hmm. my school district has, you know, somebody comes in and there's a pro- we've got the process all laid out, you know, and we ha- we create we have a committee that has like 25 people on it, you know, people from the community as well as educators and all this other kind of stuff. But you got to you got to buy 25 books. You know, somebody wants to ban the book, you got 25 you got to go buy the books. You know, and then you've got the time, administrator time in, in organizing and, and then the actual time of reviewing and all of that kind of stuff. It adds up to thousands and thousands of dollars just per book ban. Yeah. And by the way, yeah. when the book, you know, so far I don't think we banned any books. At least I hope not. But then guess what? Then you've got 25 book copies of the banned book sitting around for yeah. students to read. <laughs> What I think something that I, I, I try to reiterate is that um, first, when I say this, it's going to sound like it's a conspiracy theory. But then when you start reading the stories and look at the context more broadly, you know, it's not. But ultimately, all of this work is to destroy public institutions. Right. Right. And specifically what these groups want to do is take away public funding for public resources. And they want to divert that into uh, private institutions. Religious, private religious. Yeah. 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 Um, And, and we're not talking about your typical homeschool group, something like that, or your typical private school. These are institutions that um, have very far right, very Christo fascist, if I can use that word here. Um, beliefs um and they want to have public funding for these institutions right right? um so when we see these book bans what it's really trying to do is waste all that time and money to then turn around and say well if you didn't have the books there we wouldn't have had to waste all this time and money and all these resources so they own the cycle start to finish and one of the things that i've been trying to really um hammer home to both school audiences and library audiences. This is talk about how much it costs, because I think it's easy for somebody who doesn't understand the costs to think that this is just part of your job, but it adds up. It does. You know, it does. So, so in your, in your blog um, about the lib, you know, the library, the uh, school librarians. Okay. Um, You, you write that, you know, there's this national organization called the uh, – is it an American Library Association? Is that what it yeah. is? The ALA. I mean this is this is about libraries. The ALA is like the professional organization for librarians. It's – you know, it's about credentialing and it's all kinds of stuff. And they have reading lists and, you know, they, they just do things to support libraries. And part of this book banning has to, to ban – Anything related to the Amer- the American Library Association? Am I right about? It? I mean, I read that in your blog, and I almost fell off the bed when I read that because that's like that's like you know wanting I'm a lawyer and other things like wanting to ban the American Bar Association from being in your state. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah, and that's exactly what's happening. And 
it's coming from a place of like sowing distrust in this organization at, you know, the citizen level who doesn't understand how libraries work. We have the data. They don't understand how selection works, but that's because they trust library workers to do their jobs because they're trained experts to right. do their job. Right. Um, we're seeing now in Iowa, they just proposed a bill that would make it against the law for libraries in the state to follow ALA policies that are there for them oh, to use, Jesus, which just... is mind blowing. <laughs> well, and in Iowa, I don't know if you saw this, but there's also now a bill to require all the students to st- sing a stanza of the of uh, the uh, national anthem at the start of every school day. No, I'm not. You know. I, did, I did so. not see that, but I also am not surprised. <laughs> so, you know, but but um, that. There's also this movement to defund the school libraries so that the so that, you know, the librarians, you know, are they're just not there. They're just not there to select the books. They're not there to also recommend the books because that's what the librarians do. They talk with the students and are like, oh, you're interested in this. We have four titles here that I think would might be of interest to you. You know, I'm happy to say that in my school district, we have a lot of media specialists. We have a lot of librarians with advanced degrees, and I have great confidence in all of them, and I think they do a fantastic job. But you're finding, right, in some percentage of school districts in the country, they're down to no librarians. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, school libraries have been in trouble for several decades now and in particular the last 15 or so years we've just seen the number of school um credentialed school library or media specialists they go by either name or several other names similar to that um disappear their jobs are being cut or they're being cut down to part-time hours across several schools in a district and that has a huge impact on every single person in that school it's the students who don't have access to book recommendations, but it's also students who lose access to an expert in information literacy, an expert in research, an expert in how to write that assignment right. you have to turn in. Um, and we know that our teachers are overwhelmed. Our teachers can't do it all. Um, and that's where your trained media specialists are so vital to the school. They're able to do the work of helping train this next generation of young people to learn and to care about learning. But they're, but they're cutting – these districts are cutting the librarians, but they're hiring teachers. They're, I mean it's not cost-cutting across the board. It right. is – am I right? I mean it's anti-wokeism at work causing administrators to say this is a potential problem for us. Let's just get rid of this problem. Am I right? You are. So there's a couple things at play. Um, One is simply just not valuing the role of the school library. The second is very much what you said. Um, For example, there's a librarian at a school district in New Jersey who, you know, her administration is not supporting her through book challenges. She received a threatening letter from a citizen um, who sells uh, tactical equipment. Oh, God. This librarian sent it to her administrators and said, hey, uh, she never heard back from them. They did not step in and say, we've got your back. We support you. And this is all over books that are being challenged in the district. These are over books. Um, You know, and 
her story, she's been very open about because she wants to get the word out there. But it's not hard to imagine this is happening at other districts across the country. And these library workers don't know who to talk to or don't feel they can talk to somebody because as soon as they do, that means maybe their job is gone. Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly the local chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union would be happy to talk, I'm sure, to talk to library folks. Listen, I'm watching my time. Kelly, I could talk to you like for five hours, okay? I mean, you know, but um, I I do want to ask you because I ask every guest this question, okay? Do you think that you're an idealist? I mean, that's what this show is about, people working to try and make positive change in the world. And if you think you're idealistic, what made you that way? How did you get that way? I, when you sent this question along, I really loved it. Um, I don't know if I've ever thought of myself as an idealist, but more of a realist. But thinking about that question, I guess I am an idealist. If I weren't, I would have given this up a long time ago. Um, It's draining work. It's hard work. It's work that has targeted me personally in so many ways. Um, And yet I watch all these people who continue to get up every morning and fight for the rights for people to have access to a whole range of material, who fight for the right for queer books to sit on shelves so that Mm -hmm. queer kids and non-queer kids can see real life right there and have access to it, to fight for books about black people and brown people and their realities historically and in modern times and say, no, those books need to be on shelf because kids, all kids need these books. And seeing that it's hard not to be inspired and hard not to be really optimistic about where we're going and, and to feel this sense of hope about how important democracy and civic engagement is to people and to want to continue to be a champion for that. What, what, you know, what made you this way? I mean, did you have an experience? Did you have a role model or? This is a great question. Um, I, I don't know if I can pinpoint one role model, but I think that just working with, young people. And Mm. when I worked in libraries, it was working with young people really is inspiring. You see these young, eager minds who have not yet stuck their feet in the mud about what they believe and refuse to move from it. And it's hard not to Mm. feel motivated by that energy and want to continue giving them the opportunity to spread their wings, to think, to learn, to grow. Um, Even if I don't agree with them, I want them to have access to ideas and to wrestle with these ideas and think of these ideas because that's what it is to be a person. And that's what it is to engage in, you know, our, our culture. Well, Kelly Jensen, I've just got to tell you, I have so enjoyed talking with you. Um, tell the listeners, how can they find your stuff? Where, where would they go to? Um, you can go to book riot, which is bookriot.com. Um, that's going to cover everything we do at Book Riot. We're the largest independent book website in North America. We talk all things books and reading. Um, if you are interested in literary activism, it's literaryactivism.substack.com. You can sign up for free, get the newsletter in your inbox. Um, it comes once a week, but often I send it more than once a week when there's a good story. I've been really focused this year on trying to highlight good bills that are um, impacting book bans and librarians across the country because there's so many bad ones that it's important to spend time with the good ones and ensure that people can 
use those as models in places where the bills aren't there, um, you know, and just see that it's not bad everywhere and that hope exists and we can fight for it. Well, Kelly, thanks so very much. And I'm with you 100 percent on all of this. You know that. But thanks so very much for being on LE 2.0 Radio. I've just so enjoyed having you here. And if there's ever anything I can do to help you, OK, let me know. All right. I'd be happy to do that. Thank you so much. And thank you for your work on the school board. We need good people on boards and you're doing it. Thanks. I appreciate that. Okay, listeners. All right. That's Kelly Jensen. Check her out. Check out her her um, blog, Literary Activism. Just Google Kelly B. Jensen. She's going to come up. You're going to find all kinds of stuff. All right. When we come back, we're going to do my C block where I'm going to talk about my work as an idealist. And I've got that special announcement that I told you about. That's called a teaser, everyone. We'll be back in a second. We're back. LA 2.0 Radio. Okay. All right. And so here we go. Um, Kelly Jensen, check out her blog. Check out Literary Activism. I mean, come on. Okay. Just, you know, another idealist. There you go. All right. First thing in my C block, I've got to make sure I forgot to say this in the A block. If you're in Minnesota, you don't have to travel to Cambridge or New Prague or over to River Falls. I, I think they do many of their meetings online. So just be aware of that, okay? So don't let that be an impediment. Oh, I got to drive up to Cambridge. I think that you can do everything online with them. Okay, uh, let's see. All right, here's the time for the big special announcement. Ah! All right, you ready? Okay, all right, I know. That sounded kind of weird over the radio. Um, March 14th, get that on your calendar, okay? Because I will be doing a public gray area thinking event at the Chaska Event Center in lovely downtown Chaska, Minnesota. Um, yep, it's going to be on March 14th. It'll go from 6.30 to 8.30. It'll be gray area thinking. You're going to get gray area thinking, and it's open to the entire public. You can come, bring your friends, all that stuff. The ticket, there's, you've got to go to Eventbrite, Eventbrite, Google, Eventbrite, gray area thinking, and you'll find the tickets. Or you can go to my website at illycrug.com and check out the events page, and, and it'll be, the link will be that there. It is, the tickets are $10. There's a reason why I did that. Well, first of all, it's not cheap to rent the uh, event center, okay? And trust me, if I was going to really try and make a living out of that talk, it would be more than $10. Um, but the other reason is because when people pay something, they're more likely to show up. And I don't want to have something where I've got a bunch of registrations and then a lot of people don't show up. And then other people maybe had wanted to come, but they couldn't come because the registration was full. So there you go. March 14th, 6.30 to 8.30, Chasky Event Center, Gray Area Thinking. Okay. And last week um, was the Best of LA show. And the reason for that is I was doing my work as an idealist. I got to speak to a bunch of LGBTQ plus middle schoolers, 6th to 8th graders. Um, and it was – well, by the way, there were adults in there. The school principal was there, several other adults. So it's not just Ellie Krug just talking to uh, LGBTQ plus kids. But we – oh, my God. Let me just tell you. I, I went and I talked to them. 
I've talked to this group before that such nice young humans. And I talked to them about grit and resiliency. Um, one of the girls pulled the pulled off of her hair a tie, you know, that you make uh, ponytails out of. And she let – I use that to show how we get stretched. But then we can go back to, you know, our normal shape after we get stretched. So – and that was to reinforce the idea that we all have resiliency. I talked with them about uh, the need to have a trusted adult in their life because uh, queer kids, young queer kids especially, need a trusted adult. We talked about um, – the need for self-compassion, and then I talked and I told them that they were worthy, that they had value, that they mattered to this world because, gosh, they need to hear that kind of message, particularly from an adult, particularly from an adult. I would like to think that I've, you know, I'm, I'm surviving and, and maybe thriving and, you know, and they can see that and maybe they, maybe that will help them. I don't know, but maybe that might help them just hang in there a little bit more. And then, I, you know, um, one of them asked me about, you know, did I miss being a lawyer? And I essentially said no. And, and what, what I told them was, I said this to them, I said, there's no other place in the world that I would rather be right now than with you in this room. And I, I meant that. I, you know, it is unbelievable how my life has arced from a selfish, attack dog, um, difficult lawyer human to somebody where uh, kindness and compassion are the core values. I just, got a, I just got an email today from somebody because my newsletter went out, which I'll talk about in a second. And the person wrote to me and he said, you know, I reminded him of Tom Hanks' Uh, saying about the three most important things in the world, which are be kind, be kind, and be kind. And it just, I, I can't, I, I, I've got to tell you, I cannot believe the arc of my life. I'm so incredibly grateful that I have that arc, and I would not have been able to have that arc had I not gotten to live as Ellie Krug. Okay. All right. Well, you got that. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, that's my work as an idealist. Now, if you are an educator or if you know an educator and you think that there might be some value of me coming and talking to LGBTQ plus kids, please reach out to me. Email me at ljkrug at gmail um, or, you know, text me if you can find my number somewhere uh, out there in the blogosphere. But but I that is among the most rewarding work that I do talking to those kids. Okay. And no, I'm not turning anyone into being gay. Okay. Or lesbian or trans. I'm not like trying to turn people just so you know that. Okay. All right. And I said, my newsletter, the ripple, the January ripple went out this week. Uh, you can find it at elliekrug.com because there's a page that says newsletters. And um, for a change, it's not abbreviated. It's like the full bore, you know, a newsletter. And I've got this wonderful, wonderful story about compassion in it about a, um, a migrant who was forced to make an incredible choice about his freedom or caring for a young boy in the middle of, a de of the desert, a stranger, a, a young boy who he came upon, who, uh, whose mother was killed in a car accident 
She was down in the ravine and the boy survived. And this migrant had to make a choice about whether or not to stay with the boy and protect him or continue on his migrant journey and for his dream of living in America. So that that story is – you can imagine it wouldn't be in the – Ripple if it didn't turn out a certain way. So – but that's, you know, a little teaser there for you. And, you know, if you go to my website, you can sign up for my newsletter. We still have 9,400 people on the Ripple. So there you go. All right. Well, listen, uh, I think it's been a great show. Uh, but, of course, I'm, you know, a little – uh, I'm a little jaundiced about that because uh, it's my show. But I hope that you've enjoyed it. Um, when we come back next time, you know, I'll hopefully have more idealism and more idealists for you. Um, but in the meantime, between now and then, will you do me a favor? Will you go out and do something, something to make the world a better place, will you? Okay. Take care. Ellie Krug, over and out. <laughs>